when you spend every day trying to be the person other people want you to be while still exploring your identity enough to be different. It can be exhausting and mentally tolling to keep that up every day for four years. My guest today, Danica Rome, went from fronting a death metal band by night while building a career as an accomplished journalist by day to being the first person to be elected and serve in any U.S. state legislature while openly transgender. And when you hear her story, you might think, wow, that's amazing, but I don't really relate to it. Well, not so fast. When you zoom the lens out, well, Danica's story is really about the quest to live as the truest expression of yourself, to stifle or not deny who you are, and to find a sense of home for all parts of you within a community, which is something nearly all of us struggle with. I know I do. So think about the first time you felt seen and heard despite what you look or talk or act like, what you believe or who you love. We all want to be embraced for who we truly are, and there's no better feeling than finding that affirmation and safety in your chosen community, whether it's family, friends, or even strangers you share a common interest with. Experiencing life's smallest and most significant moments is just so much more meaningful when shared with other people. And this is especially relevant now, right? When it's so easy to choose divisiveness over unity or focus on the differences between ourselves and the next person versus the things that we share in common. But when we peel back all those external layers and labels and politics and beliefs and more, what we find is that we're all human. And that shared experience is the common ground we can always stand on. This is why I was so excited to be in conversation with Danica. So in addition to her passion for metal, love of service, and being a part of the historic group that flipped seats in the 2017 Virginia election, Danica's writing has been featured in USA Today, People, GQ, New York Times, Elle, and so many others. And she was the subject of the GLAAD award-winning documentary, This Is How We Win. And in this conversation, Danica takes us back to her teenage years, where she first found her community in what may sound surprising now, but won't later, in the metal music world. And we talk about the struggles of masking the authentic parts of ourselves in order to fit in, and how she's been able to use her experiences to relate with people from all all different backgrounds on the most human level. Danica's new memoir meets manifesto, Burn the Page, deconstructs many sometimes outrageous and deeply isolating and offensive stories her doubters and opponents have thrown at her and shows through this brutal honesty how she has turned her identity and values and experiences into her greatest strengths. And she brings that same honesty and authenticity to our conversation today. So know that you're in for a real treat. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. It was fun to see learning more about you, reading about you, listening to some other conversations. Your enduring passion for George Carlin, which is someone who I, I have I've always followed as a, you know not just a comedian, but one of the I think one of the most pointed and prolific social commentary um, and almost philosophers um, of a couple of generations. And you know, I never agreed with everything George had to say. I'm sure George didn't agree with everything he of had course. to say. <laughs> Some of the, but the way in which he presented arguments, the way in which he presented humor, that is really what resonated very strongly with me. That and the fact that he grew up in Catholic school in the Bronx. My mother is uh, from the Bronx, also went to Catholic school, and so did I go to Catholic school, but in Virginia. It's actually kind of funny that the name of your podcast is The Good Life, because I went to St. Bonaventure, right? The Good Life. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually had a class called Good Life when I was in college. That's pretty funny. Yeah, well, there's no connection, by the way. We are not affiliated in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, oh, I, there's a little part of me that was wondering if the Franciscans were running this podcast. That would have been cool. <laughs> Uh, no, not, not at all. Um, but, but, and I agree with you on sort of like Carlin, I think like there are plenty of things that, um, that I completely don't agree with that he says, but there was something about the way that he, um, would step into a conversation. It it was his energy. There was something that was just so like, I'm going to tell it the way I see it. And I'm going to speak to you not from above or not from the side, but just from like face to face, shoulder to shoulder on the same level and never assume anything. And I think that's, that's different in, especially in this day and age. What George did that was so effective that with me was especially is he had such a strong anti-authoritarian streak and he would put that on display almost regardless of who was in power. Although he certain while he certainly had his critiques for Democrats, he had some special critiques really for the hypocrisy that he would see from the other side, especially. And what I really, really liked with George as well is his ability to confront the taboo, find a way to make you laugh about it, and then question the power that is behind what has made something become taboo. 
Uh, I thought that he was very effective in the way that he did that and and funny, like, you know, like the way he would talk about LGBTQ people, for example, um, he would try to tie that in speaking to about like he why he couldn't understand how right wing, you know, social conservatives could be opposed to LGBTQ people because he's like, what population is more li- less likely to have an abortion? <laughs> right? And so he goes, you would figure they would make natural, uh, natural allies. Now, obviously, we know a lot of LGBTQ people do have abortions, right? And, you know, that's just, that's not something that, you know, is necessarily trivial. But the larger point that he was trying to make on it was the inexplicable nature of discrimination. And why would you you know, want to take people's rights away when, instead of trying to make friends with people. I, I think that was his uh, larger point. Yeah. yeah at, at the heart of it, it's funny, as, as, as much as he railed against almost everybody in every way, shape or form, underneath it, you always felt that there was a sense of a genuine love for humanity. As cranky as he was, there was something that said, I want us to do better. In On the other do. hand... <laughs> he was he could be very misanthropic and still despite that misanthropy still very much like being around people and loving making people laugh for example it's just that he had an utter disbelief in the ability of human beings to always do the right thing <laughs> yeah i i think that was enduring until his i would imagine his last breath actually and i did get to see him live by the way shortly oh, no before kidding. he died yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, um, that's yeah it was over in Maryland at Pier Six, actually. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. I got there a little bit late because I was working, but uh, yeah, but yeah, that was super cool. And yeah. I, saw, I saw his the last bit that he did about someone named Dave was uh, pretty amazing. Nah, um, and he also, I mean, to, to your point, you know, on on his social commentary and really bringing up these issues, I mean, he literally creates a list that ends up generating a massive Supreme Court decision, like, it, you know, like at the end of the day. So it did. I still it brought know things. all the words. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, pretty, I think most of us do. And it's been interesting also, because over time, it's been interesting to see how many, like some of those words drop off the list, you know, to a certain extent, which is kind yeah. of fascinating. Yeah. It used to be that you could get like an, a, like an SEC fine for saying the word shit, for example. And right. now that one is, it's so commonly used. And I, th- I think part of it is also that maybe those fines do get put out, but basically it's almost like the cost of doing business now for depending on the organization that you're with. Also, and I, I said SEC earlier, that's a Virginia term, it's a F- FEC. But um, funny thing is, in, even in their case now, it's almost like the system has become so dysfunctional in terms of their ability to govern almost that it just kind of doesn't matter. There's there's no one watching the hen house anymore, not even the fox. And so it's just like, okay, you know, come on in, do what you want. <laughs> yeah. And as you shared, the other similarity, he um, he grew up in Catholic school. So did you in the early days. And um, I know you, you talk about it and you write about it in, in not not the most glowing terms. Um, it, it was a tough, tough experience for you. Yeah. But at the same time, like my Catholic school upbringing, it was not as hard as a lot of people's. I never got into a fist fight, for example, despite one person trying. One person pushed me 15 times in one day trying to get me to hit him back, and I refused, which is kind of my little thing for nonviolent resistance, uh, even as a teenager. <laughs> you know, so in that regard, I did not have it as bad as a lot of other people, but instead, I had a lot of angst that would cause me, as a natural extrovert, 
to become very closed off to most of the rest of the world when I would get home from school, for example, and just go online and talk to one person where it's like, it was almost like my relief was when I would get home from school every day when we had AOL Instant Messenger, like, you know, when we had AAM, first off, I didn't have the internet my freshman year of high school. <laughs> um, and then so we got the internet after that. I didn't want to talk to people who I went to school with when I was mm. out of school. Like I almost looked at them in the way that a lot of adults would look at having work friends. And then, you know, like when you aren't around work, you're not talking to your work friends, right? Now, obviously that's not the case for everyone. You know, plenty of people have friends from work that they hang out with afterward. But in my case, I wanted to completely dissolve myself of the day, more or less. And I think part of that is when you spend every day trying to be the person other people want you to be while still exploring your identity enough to be different. It can be exhausting and mentally tolling to keep that up every day for four years. Whereas if you go home and you just talk to a friend online, especially someone you've never actually met in person before, what you'll find instead is you can project the image that you want much more clearly almost through the lens of anonymity, although it wasn't uh, anonymous at all, it, just in terms of creating your persona in a non-judgmental environment where you're, you don't have all these other outside pressures affecting you. It's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation and whatever you want to bring up in the day isn't going to have another person contradicting or inserting their point of view into. And I think that the experience that I had in high school was definitely one where, you know, I could go from niche group to niche group to niche group without ever really having a home in one group, hmm. per se. That also meant it's kind of what happens when you become the jack of all trades, right? Where you never really master one thing, <laughs> but you know, you're okay at a lot of little things. And so that's kind of how I would go from friend group to friend group without ever being like the most popular person within that group, right? You mentioned it was a very angsty experience for you and that part of what you were escaping was judgment. Um, you know, when you would go on AIM and talk to these other friends who you chose to be in conversation with in an intimate way, when you talk about angst and judgment, it occurs to me that that probably is multi-level, right? Because you're A, in the container of a Catholic school, which is very likely teaching things that you're like internally, they're landing in your heart as they're literally teaching me that something's wrong <laughs> with oh, me. Oh, the classic example I used in the book was like, I had to fill out on a test, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? That was in 10th grade. I remember that clear as day. Yeah. And <laughs> it's just like, this is messed up. Why am I doing this? Yeah. And and then you layer with that sort of like the, the potential for social judgment if you show up as who you're increasingly feeling like, okay, so this is who I am. This is really how I'm identifying, but I can't actually present that way. I'm so curious now, actually, because you're sharing how you're on the one hand an extrovert, meaning like as a general, you're energized by being around people. You love that experience. But at the same time, you're in this experience where you feel like the you that is truly you can't show up. And be accepted and be welcomed and be embraced. Um, but you have this social wiring that is nourishing when you're around people um, who see you as you and who embrace you as you and who you don't have to hide from. That has had to be su such a tough dynamic. So th that 
actually really came to fruition in my 20s mm. when I started playing in bands, especially where I didn't feel that it was safe and that I would be accepted to be and embraced, frankly, to be the woman who I am, that being loud jackass center of attention running a metal band, you know, on stage being the life of the party, that was somehow much more acceptable as long as you did it while presenting as male, which is just like, that's social commentary in and of itself. But it's one that I very much was susceptible to of wanting to be like, which was very much something where I would have deep-seated feelings of inadequacy. And which, you know, I mean, surprise, we weren't for office, right? Hey, I want to be relevant. <laughs> something like that, right? But I think that at its most vulnerable, when you are not only wanting to be liked, but you're trying to find people to connect with, you're trying to find a sense of community, knowing fully well that you were never the popular kid, right? That you were always going to be the outsider to some extent. I think that you will find a way to make it work even in a temporary, non-entirely authentic setting. So as long as you get that thing that you're looking for in terms of sense of community, but that can also cause a lot of self-destructive behavior as you do it. And that was absolutely my case. Now, I was never an alcoholic, for example, but I was definitely a party drinker. You know, I was I was a social right. drinker throughout all my 20s and, you know, from the time I was in college, you know, more or less until I turned 30. And I think what I learned from that experience especially was there is a shelf life on the ways that you will mask your authentic sense of self, that you will keep it at bay as long as different parts of your personality can have that that spotlight. But mm. what you find, I will never regret having a sense of community in the metal community. Just this morning, I went out for, uh, you know, went out, got my hot chai latte this morning and go talk to a friend for a while. Saw one of my metal friends from, you know, I always have, say my pre-2017 friends, right? Saw one of my pre-2017 friends, you know, just immediately, you know, just, you know, talk shop for a little bit and everything. And and uh, it was so funny. I saw him from the side before he saw his face. I was like, hey, look, that guy looks familiar. And then I said to uh, my, my friend, I was like, yeah, yeah, he'll, if you look at him, he's from, clearly from the underground. He, he He's part of my base. <laughs> and then uh, he turned around. I was like, oh, my God, and it's Jordan. Uh, you know, I yell over to him and he comes over, he talks to me for a bit. And I think that sense of community that you have is when you have developed your personality into someone who genuinely is energized by other people, who gets along with other people and wants to, you know, experience things together with other people, that when you choose to make yourself vulnerable in terms of coming out in my case and having that, I think for a number of trans people, though not universally by any means, it becomes easier for you to come out knowing that you have something else to fall back on that isn't just a very thin veneer of an expression of masculinity as the thing being in common, but you have other commonalities and other interests. Where the phrase I would try to use in my very George Carlin sort of way when I was coming out to people is like, oh, I'm still me. I just want to look and smell better. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, I, I thought that was like, you know, kind of a funny way to, you know, it, you know, to express things. Obviously, there's a lot more to <laughs> transitioning that. And I keep using qualifiers and everything I'm saying right now. But uh, I think the self-destructive behavior that I would have in my 20s in terms of, 
you know, hardcore partying where, you know, I ended up throwing up or whatever. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the book, we're in the page out April 26th uh, through Viking. I described one day in 2009 where I woke up only wearing a pair of damp socks and a Jägermeister wristband. And that was it. And I was just like, uh, how did I get here? <laughs> right. And I had to like sort of put all of those pieces back together. And at age 25, okay, you know, it's, it's still funny and kind of cute at 25, if not like silly story. If I did at 35, you'd be like, what the hell? You know what I mean? Like, you know, like your, your life is broken at that point. I could also very much see that's not where I wanted my life to go. And I knew that while it was fun to a degree to have, you know, just like that style of letting loose or like the day before I graduated college in 2006, um, one of the friars ended up saying like, you know, we're known as a party school because we celebrate life on this campus. You know? <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's I always saw going to heavy metal shows as very much that celebration of being alive with other people and the loudest, most intense way possible, which, you know, very often also you know, involved alcohol because alcohol to me was a great igniter that would bring people together for common cause. Let's have a drink together and lower inhibitions together. And funny enough, the more I drank, the more my feminine expression would very much come out. And I would start getting very flamboyant to the point where it was just like almost to like the point of absurdity in a way. But I was also very much realizing was how much I had been repressing and repressing and repressing. And that when that filter went down and the expressions that I would have and the way that I would talk and communicate and do things was very much just like that part of me just kind of flooding out. And it hadn't been honed. It hadn't been developed in a way where it was necessarily just a day-to-day part of my existence. And so when it did come out, it was like, I'm not sure how it's supposed to be. I just know it's not what I've been doing. So let's put everything out there and be very flamboyant with hand motions and the way that I speak and the way that we're going to do things and start hugging people and start braiding hair with other people and start getting into really super queer conversations, which is very strange for a straight guy. And hey, by the way, uh, I see that you do your eyebrows really clean. That's kind of weird for a straight guy too. And also like, I would throw all this stuff out there and then it's like almost like pause, right? You're like, why? Mm. And part of it was wanting to make people laugh. Part of it was wanting to express to women in particular, I'm not a threat. It's okay to be yourself Mm. around me even if I'm struggling to be myself around everyone else. I want you to feel safe around me the same way that you feel safe around other women. That was very important for me to communicate even when I was inebriated, you know, and here I am now at 37 and I want everyone to feel safe around me. I want people to know that if they're, they want to be vulnerable enough to be visible, that it's okay when you're with me because I accept you for who you are, not for who you think you're supposed to be. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. I'm so curious also because, I mean, you've referenced the metal community for a, a bunch now. And from the outside looking in, you know, I, I would imagine there are a lot of assumptions about what um, the metal community, and when we're saying metal, we're talking about heavy metal music, melodic heavy metal. For those who are confused, it's not metal, the object. Yeah, sometimes right? it depends. We like wearing a I lot of imagine, metal and metal. Right, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Came from somewhere. It's very simple. Metal is heavier than rock. That's all. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just thinking of like, like the first time I actually saw that, like the original animated like heavy metal, I think it was 81 or 82. And I was like, this is an interesting world. But you dive headlong into that world at the at a pretty early age. And, 14, yeah. Right, which which is fairly young. So, so you're, for you, I would, I guess my curiosity is you at 14 saying, yeah, I'm all in on this. I'm listening to it. I'm going to shows. I'm, I'm talking about it. I'm writing about it. I'm 100% a part of the culture. Does the way that you step into the community, but also does does the the job that heavy metal has in your life change over time? Yeah. So if you look at like how I wrote about it in the book, for example, 
I very much talk about learning and embracing the culture at 14, right? And very much still feeling like an outsider to it when I go to my first concert yeah. and I see people who are, do, who are way more hardcore than my little Catholic school self was at all. And I very much mention a Cradle of Filth t-shirt in particular that had something written on the back that's very, very naughty. And I was like, <gasps> you like seeing that. It was very shocking, right? And seeing people smoke pot out in the open. And to this day, like all I ever did was drink. I never smoked anything, not even cigarettes, because, you know, I decided very early in my life that I was going to pick one poison and be good at it, which was <laughs> drinking, right? And now I don't even do that. Now I have kombucha. That's my uh, trace alcohol, right? <laughs> Most Northern Virginia liberal white woman only possible. <laughs> like, love my kombucha. So I think it's kind of funny that my introduction to the culture was really based on just talking to, you know, some guys in the back of the room in my social studies class, my Western civ class in my freshman year of high school. And I knew I liked metal when I was in uh, middle school, but it was what was accessible via radio, right? Like Black Sabbath, Metallica, and really it was like mid-90s Metallica. I had no idea that their entire 80s catalog, you know, Kill Em All and Red Lightning and Master of Puppets and Justice for All, even the Garage Days Revisited uh, EP in uh, 87, had no idea those things even existed. As far as I knew, old Metallica was the Black Album. New Metallica was the Load Reload era. I had no idea uh, beyond that. I didn't own many Black t-shirts. The first time I bought a you know a band t-shirt was a, my Black Sabbath shirt that I actually wore to OzFest 99 because I was that kid who was uh, the shirt of the band that kid is there to see. <laughs> And it was very much a learning about it and adjusting to it. And I remember to this day, the first band I ever saw, I got to Ozfest late in 99 because uh, it was a school day. So I couldn't get there until afterward. It was a fear factory was headlining the side stage and like Burton C. Bell, their singer was telling people to flip over cop cars in the parking lot and stuff. Right. And I was just like, whoa, what the hell? It was like, that's, that's a jets. Wow. And the way he was singing he uh, like and the guitar player Dean uh, uh, Casares was uh, was playing. They were get so red faced with veins bulging as they were doing it. And I look into the crowd from the top of the hill down, and at the bottom there's just this giant sea of dust and dirt. Right, and this one person was crowd surfing and bent into a backwards V, where it was like their ankles were about to touch their head and stuff. I was like, that's too intense for me, <laughs> right? And so fast forward many many years where I have now been like so exposed to every form of you know metal and every venue of consuming the live version of it and traveled the world seeing it you know well, not the world but you know Europe and you know North America seeing it and I've understood that there are definitely cultural differences in terms of how metal is presented and exposed and everything. I also understand the universality of heavy metal and that when you go to a festival in Germany, uh, you can make a lot of friends really quickly if you've got a uh, bottle of Jägermeister and you know some municipal waste lyrics, <laughs> which we very much used to do. And I think in terms of the job, in terms of how it informs me now, what's different is when I was that teenager really getting into it and it's all I wanted to be around, I could be very judgmental toward other people for liking different types of music because it wasn't good enough, right? Mm. And now at 37, I look at other people and be like, look, the fact that you have found music in your life, whatever genre or subgenre it is, and it's resonated with you great i'm just glad you know you've got something that you really feel passionate and care about you know and 
as I'm talking to you right now, I'm still wearing my Moonspell hoodie, <laughs> you know, like my Portuguese gothic new metal band. Uh, and this album, 1755, is entirely in Portuguese, by the way. <laughs> and I do not speak Portuguese, and yet I love that album. I look at, when I, when I see other people from my community, from the underground heavy metal community, I get to have a connection with them that's very special in that regard if we can, you know, just nerd out on music all we want. But when I talk to other people, I'm no longer judgmental about what it is that they like in terms of their music. It's much more an appreciation of the fact that, hey, at least something resonates with them. And I think it's a much more adult way of looking at things as opposed to what I think I saw it as, which was anything that's not what I like is a threat to what I like. And I think if you will bring that into politics, that is a thing that is very prevalent in our society in terms of if you aren't from this, if I don't understand your experience, then whatever it is that you have is threatening toward me. And that is dangerous. And I think that's the sort of thing that has created such a deep chasm in terms of people being able to reconcile different ideologies in order to even have friends who believe different things from themselves anymore. That's very difficult because I don't see that getting better. I see that very much getting worse as we are watching a hyper intense polarization happening because that is what generates not only outrage, but it generates attention, it generates clicks, it generates views, which means that it generates profit and revenue. And that as long as it's profitable for people to divide people more so than it is to bring them together, then or if they're bringing them together, it's around being against someone as opposed to being for you know everyone, that's dangerous. And I like to think that the way I view music is similar in that regard to how I view politics, where I do very much see ideologies that are set up to prevent people from having civil rights as inherently being threatening. And at the same time, I will still talk to those folks. I will still have conversations with them, even when I so vehemently disagree with something that they else they believe in, because in Richmond, that's what you have to do. You have to form coalitions with people who you don't always agree with. Otherwise, your bills won't pass. Otherwise, you're not going to get stuff done. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine also it's interesting in that even within every, any particular, let's say, music-focused community, whether it's metal, whether it's indie rock, whether it's whatever it is, that there are going to be a wide swath of people who love the music and love so much about the culture of the music, but have beliefs outside of that that are profoundly different from each other. And it's the, it's that shared thing that allows them to communicate. Oh, d different subgenres of metal attract different political ideologies. Absolutely true. Yeah. But the, the shared love, I wonder if that, that serves to a certain extent as a bridge. Like there's, there's one point of sort of like, there's one place where we can actually connect. Yes. So that bridge does exist. And I will tell you that when uh, I was in Cabaret, for example, uh, when I was in Cabaret Homo, my former band, all of us had different political ideologies. All of us did. And, you know, which mm -hmm. I also mentioned in the book, because we had a rule at one point in the band that if you talked about politics for more than five seconds, you had to take a shot of old granddad. Old granddad tastes exactly <laughs> as it sounds for those of you out in the ether uh, wondering, don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> it's not a delightful drink unless, you know, like, although I will tell you, though, it's so funny. I remember when I was in my 20s, 
my cousin was over at my house and my grandfather was that we were out on the porch together and so like we both were trying to like cowboy face the uh, like some old granddad and so we throw back these shots and we're both like ah you know everything but grandfather takes a sip of it and he's like oh that's mellow <laughs> like <laughs> ultimate cowboy face right and it was just like oh wow yeah so it was really really funny watching someone in their 80s putting everyone else to shame <laughs> that's pretty funny so that's interesting within the band, like even within this group of, uh, I guess it was five people. Yeah, I was like, you know, it started out as four and then went to five. Yeah. And we had a number of like lineup changes and right. stuff over the years. But yeah, very much so. Right. And then you have different ideologies, even in this most immediate group. Mm -hmm. So when you get to a point where you're in your late 20s and you're starting to, you're also really starting to, to grapple with your gender identity and you're deciding, okay, I, I, I'm reaching a point where I think you were around 28 years old when you write about it. You're like, okay, so I'm, I'm pushing up against 30 now. I don't want to live the next decade of my life is, is the way you describe it in the book as the way that I've been living it. it I need to present as who I am. And this, this medal has been, I mean... Yes, you have a life outside of metal. You're a journalist and you're doing all these different things and you're building a career. But metal is still a really central part of your life. And the community was a community that was with you since you were 14 years old. When you decide, okay, I need to actually do something to externally start to step into this identity. I'm curious how and when you actually start to do that. And I guess it happens, you describe right around this time when you're actually back from a tour that you guys did in uh, – the UK. And then shortly after that, you immerse yourself in coverage of an election. And then it's like, okay, it's time. Um, but then when you go back to the band, and then it's time to go back to a festival, it had to have been, I'm curious what's going through your, like your mind and your heart at that point, because it's not just you saying, okay, it's time for me to step out and, and, and present as who I, I've, I've always known myself to be. But also like, how is this community that I'm so deeply connected with and have been for such a big part of my life going to receive me? Yep. In terms of that community, what's, when I actually not only transitioned, but went public with my transition a year to the day when I was on HRT. So this was, started HRT December 3rd, 2013. And so exactly one year later in 2014, the HRT being hormone replacement therapy. When I right. came out to all my metal friends, just like kind of like in a big Facebook life event sort of thing, I didn't lose a single friend over my transition. What had held me back for so long was I knew the women in my life were going to be just fine with it. I didn't think that my guy friends were going to embrace me or they were going to think that I was somehow, you know, threatening them or coming on to them or anything like that. I thought it was going to damage the structure of relationships, whereas in, in fact, it didn't. And I think also by that time where I didn't care about physical horse playing anymore, you know, just like, you know, like, you know, messing around with people or it's like, no, I, I promise this isn't sexual at all. This was like, you know, literally just let's be a big jackasses. That became less important when I turned 30. Right. And so I think part of what happened is that I was willing to accept whatever risk that was associated with coming out because what were the downsides at that point? And it was much more difficult for my extended family, my extended family of birth, than it very much was for a lot of my friends, I think. In kind of a weird way, I also think for a number of friends, it's almost like, oh, I now have a trans friend. Okay, that's cool. I get, I get, to, I get to say that now, right? <laughs> and what I ended up finding out is once I came out, I started having a lot of other people I know either come out to me or... They would ask me about 
their relatives or their friends who had come out to them and needing advice about them. What I didn't think about and didn't anticipate ahead of time was what a release valve my own coming out would be for other people because then it gave them Mm. someone else to ask questions about or to confide in. And I started having a number of people who, whether I suspected it or not, started telling me about their gender diversion, their you know different sexual orientations, or the people in their lives who fit that one way or the other. Or they would say, hey, I have a question or I have a concern or I'm worried or whatever about someone else. That became important. And some people started revealing severe trauma to me as well of things that they had confided in and very much buried because they felt that I was safe. And to me, being trusted and knowing that it's safe to talk to me is something I value so much. And I think that's part of my extroversion in a way of if you want people to like you and you like being around other people, it's they got to trust you at the end of the day, right? I think anyone who understands what it's like to burn a bridge and have people who have lingering resentment toward you or you have lingering resentment toward them would very much understand in that regard of not wanting to have that feeling over and over again, which is, you know, part of life. It's just, you know, it's what people have. But I think that you very much want to have a connection that is deep and beyond surface level. And the way to do that, the phrase I love using is being vulnerable enough to be visible. Yeah, which is such a powerful, I mean, for you to, I mean, you made this decision because it's what you need to do for yourself and then to actually see how people around you respond to you. And then you end up being seen as somebody who is a go-to person where like people can open their hearts and their truths too, which had to have been like, you know, on, on the one hand, like incredible. I would imagine also it took some some adjusting because that wasn't why you decided to uh, to come out. Like this was just something that was happening on the side. And at the same time, you're grappling with your own stepping into life, like as, you know, presenting the way that you know you've always been. But, but there's a lot to deal with there. There's a lot to grapple with. And then other people now want to share their stories with you. And I'm wondering whether there's almost like a, a boundary issue that comes up because on the one hand, you want to be open, you want to be friendly, you want to be supportive, but you also need the space to figure this out in your own life, in your own context. Yes. Yeah, so the other thing is there are wanting to be out, wanting to be open, wanting to confide in people and have people confide in you. All of that is predicated on people who are acting in good faith. All of it. Mm, yeah. And you then come across, especially in politics, people who are quite literally paid to act in bad faith, to be opposition researchers and such, right? And to exploit your weaknesses and make you out to be the worst person possible as long as it gains votes for their client. Or maybe even the candidate themselves actually are the ones doing it. So I think that um, what you find in politics that can keep a lot of politicians from being as forthright and authentic and honest with people as they would want to be and what the public would hope for them to be is the fear of being attacked, the fear of the fallout of bad things from their past or about who they are. Would the public, would their voters still support them if they knew who they really were, right? I think that's really one of the fundamental questions about why do we have such, you know, the inherent dishonesty in politics in the most absurd way. It's if people really knew who I was, 
they might not vote for me. So I will be not myself to all these people and hope that that will be just fine. And it's what they're looking for. And then from that, you get all the standard cookie cutter crap that you see of what I hate is the B-roll shots. Oh my God, like my, my team knows my loathe of a bunch of people sitting around a table holding empty coffee mugs with plastic smiles on. And I've done that photo shoot. I hated it. Hated it because it's so phony. It's so cheesy. It's like, yeah, but it makes you soft and relatable and everything else. Like, it's staged. It is clearly staged. There's nothing candid about this whatsoever. I hate doing that crap. And at the same time, it's, you know, like, you also, when you're dealing with your teams and stuff, you got to know what, you know, what is your demarcation line? How far are you willing to, you know, go to just get people to leave you alone in some cases, you know? So I think as long as there are bad actors who want to exploit your weaknesses in terms of your personality and your personal characteristics, as opposed to keeping differences policy-based, then you will have people who are too afraid to be themselves. And likewise, they will continue to put up a front to get people to accept the version of themselves that they think they want, that the public wants from them. And the challenge that I'm issuing to people via my book you know, the purpose of the entire title of Burn the Page is to take those pre-ascribed narratives about who you are, who, you, who they get you to be, and for you to actually be authentic. And I think to own your narrative, to put your own stuff out there first, is the most disarming thing that you can do in politics. And I was under the national microscope my entire first campaign. I was, of course, afraid of what was going to happen. I didn't know how things were going to go. And at the same time, I also realized from the 2016 campaign when Donald Trump was bragging about sexually assaulting women. It's like, well, have you ever done that? No. Did you ever say that you could take someone out into Fifth Avenue, shoot him and not lose anything? And then he still wins an election because of the Electoral College as opposed to popular vote? <laughs> I'm like, well, I haven't killed anyone and haven't been sexually assaulting anyone. So I guess I'm qualified. Right. So it's like if that's the demarcation line of, of you know, like what counts as good behavior in politics, then what the hell else am I afraid of in my backstory at that point? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because then you, you literally go out and you're like, OK, so let's let's I know from what I can remember, I, I, I know what I've done in the past. I know like what I've been a part of in the past. and I know how it can be spun. But let me literally hire you know, like a team of people who would be hired by people who would want to potentially like go against me to do the same thing. Yeah. And, and that's very standard. Uh, that's very standard in the campaign is you do your own self oppo as well as opping your, you know, right. especially when you're a first time candidate. And so we did that in my first two campaigns. We didn't have a need to do that in my third campaign. It was just, right. there's like, what have I At done in the point, last two there. years? It's anything right. different than before. It's like, no, we're, we're good. Just save our money, you know, do the oppo on the new candidate and, you know, and, and really just try to figure out where the holes that, you know, what's missing. And so we didn't have a need to go with personal attacks, you know, especially in that third campaign. There was no point in it. It was just like, no, we have the deaf policy differences to be able to win this campaign. We'll be just fine. Yeah. And I, th I would imagine also like in no small part, part of that comes from, you know, like boots on the ground, you as a reporter, as a journalist for a chunk of year, just going out there and talking to thousands and thousands of people and interviewing a lot of people and realizing, okay, at the end of the day, do they really care what my gender identity is? Or do they care 
what I can potentially do for the way that they're going to live their lives on a daily basis. <laughs> so the, Jonathan, the phrase that I always use is when you're stuck in traffic on Route 28, no one cares about the gender identity of the person who has the best idea to fix it. They just care that it gets fixed. Right. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33 inch all terrain tires and multi terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I have to imagine that your time actually being on the other side of the the pen and the keyboard and, and the microphone um, really drilled that home and was a powerful part of the way that you decided to step into the yes. world of politics. <laughs> Just very much so. Yes. Yeah. So when you're in that world, right, and you get elected... You're like, all right, I'm, I'm making the change. I am absolutely not changing who I am and I'm presenting myself to the world as I am because I've worked too hard to get here. And to, and you make this call and say, take me or leave me. Like, I'm going to talk through the issues. And if you want to talk about my identity, that's a part of who I am. But let's talk about what I can do for you. Then when you actually get into office and you have this really interesting opportunity presented, I think where 
on the one hand, you're representing your, your local constituents, what's happening in their neighborhood with their traffic light, like on any given day, a moment in time. But you also have a national spotlight now where the national spotlight is at least in part focused not just on the issues, but on who you are and what you represent to a broader population. I'm curious whether just the way that you experience that personally changes and the way that you feel you want to, like, you get there because you want to represent your local constituents. But once you're there, does that change because of the the brightness of the spotlight that is now on bigger issues? No, it gives, here's a classic example of why it's not. Yeah. When I was invited to be Demi Lovato's AMA date, you know, right, uh, yeah. in 2017. And I knew that the interviewers had no interest in actually talking to me. <laughs> you know, like when I was uh, like doing the two interviews, I was simply standing there with a microphone and they felt it necessary to ask me questions at that point i was like okay sure i've got a national to some extent worldwide audience right now of tens of millions of people and i also know a lot of people in haymarket gainesville manassas manassas park are watching this so i'm going to talk about route 28 and fighting dominion uh, transmission lines <laughs> and that's exactly what i did for the red Army. and then uh i'll, I'll paraphrase it that uh one of our local newspapers uh, inside nova they have a headlight afterward. It was just like uh, Rome goes on AMAs with Demi Lovato, semicolon talks for Route 28 on red carpet. <laughs> and I it was just like, yes, best headline I could possibly get out of this. And uh, one of the other delegate elects at the time turned to when seeing me on the red carpet. He goes, Dana Kazan, I bet she's going to talk about Route 28 10 seconds later. <laughs> To me, it's always about how do I get to use my national platform to highlight local issues that I want to, you know, to highlight, you know, because I think also, though, what's the national interest, you know, things happening here in, you know, Western Prince William County and Manassas Park? Well, to me, I think that greater interest is it's a microcosm of America and the issues that we deal with here certainly can resonate across the country in different areas. And I think that the stories that we share here in our outside of DC is not foreign to people living in the Midwest or the West Coast or, you know, the Rocky Mountains in your case. I think there's a lot of common humanity and there's the human interest of just learning about a different place and saying, hey, that sounds familiar to something that I'm going through. And as I do all of that, I am also recognizing that while my top priority and responsibility is to represent the 101,000 people of the 13th district, I also recognize that in a way I am an ambassador for trans people, whether or not it is fair and whether or not it is right, because I will never, you know, trans people are not a monolith. I will never know the lived experience of a trans woman who speaks English as a second language, who's immigrated to this country, who's a person of color, for example. I will never have the life expectancy issue of a black trans woman living in Baltimore versus a white trans woman living in the burbs outside of you know DC, where so many trans people have problems finding any employment, which is why they turn to survival work in the first place. Whereas I've got three jobs between, you know, legislating, between being the executive director of Emerge Virginia, where my job is to, you know, recruit and train Democratic women to run for office. And my third job, which is promoting this book, <laughs> right? So when I look at what I have in that regard, it is so important for me to remember to stay grounded, 
never lose who I was and draw on those experiences and never think of myself as better than or other than any other person who I do or even don't represent. So as long as it's done in a conversational way where it's not based on aloofness, even if we're talking about being Demi Lovato's AMA date is weird. And I very much talked about that in the book of like how I felt like a fish out of water until Demi actually walked into the hotel room and we got to meet each other. And I felt much more calm in that moment. And then, you know what I did? Like that night, I got back on a red eye flight, overnight flight from LAX back to uh, BWI, got home to Prince William County and drove to the legislative agenda breakfast that the Prince William School Board was having at 7.30 the next morning, right? And uh, Senator Jeremy Pike took a picture of me being like, fresh back from L.A. Here's Delegate Rome, who has Delegate Electrum, who hasn't missed anything. And I was bleary-eyed, tired, and we like, I'm still here to do my job, still here to take care of kids, still here to take care of teachers, still here to, you know, hear about what the concerns are from the community. And it's having that balance. That's how I think you balance having the national profile with local responsibilities, because having a national profile doesn't mean you have to be aloof and it doesn't mean that you have to think of yourself as other than. But and I'll tell you, being a delegate, especially your state delegate, I give out my personal cell phone number to thousands of people routinely at the door. I just I write it down on a piece of paper and give it out all the time. Why? Because I was like, I was a reporter for more than 10 years. I can handle crazy. <laughs> like if someone tries to come back to me, that's what what? What are they gonna say that I haven't heard already? Please. Are you kidding? Are you a community newspaper reporter? I've heard everything. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm not afraid of that. But but at the same time, I think in doing so, when I do get those phone calls and you know from constituents like, hey, a couple of years ago you stopped by and I no I have a question or whatever. That is very grounding. And it's the thing I love doing. You know, it's so funny. Just yesterday, I was watching a video of one of my favorite singers, uh, Floor Jansen. There's kind of a comedic uh, twist to this. So she's the singer of the band Nightwish. And when she took over as front woman for Nightwish in 2013 at Bakken Open Air in Germany, I was there. And uh, she performed uh, the song Ghost Love Score with Nightwish. And it's one of the most electrifying performances in heavy metal history to this day of like all time heavy metal great performances. When she hits that high G sharp, it is so unbelievably jaw-dropping of what happens in that moment and it's just the crowd erupts in a way that's just like we all knew we've witnessed a special moment in that case right and so she did a reaction video to watching herself do that because of all these other reaction videos she's like night wish that you're reacts to score live which i thought i saw the humor that i got you know the, the point but what i loved in seeing that video is she's watching herself perform just very almost like methodically and very almost like disattached almost like doctor looking at patient style and then she's the the camera turns to the group of young women in the front row singing along and that's where she flashes this grin and you see her smile go out and you realize very quickly for whatever she got paid for that night whatever it did for her career or whatever she saw people connecting with her, singing the same song, singing the same lyrics as her and having an emotional experience along with her. That supersedes all the other things that go into that. And that for her felt so special. I know what that feeling is like in a much smaller sense. I wasn't performing for 80,000 people, 
but playing clubs and having people sing back my own words to me, amazing. And I still view that other people having that connection with me is so much more important than anything regarding fame or television time or, you know, being invited to do interviews, even like this. It's sharing that moment with other people and sharing a very human experience with people, regardless of whether you know them, that breaks down the barrier in her case between musician and fan to just human and human having a human experience. And it's the same way for politician and constituent to then become two people sharing a moment. And I think that is so rewarding in and of itself is just knowing that you've done something that positively affects someone's life. Like we've now passed 32 of my bills, you know, in my three terms. And one of those bills, we're still waiting for the governor to sign by next week. That bill is designed for us to ensure that people in the limb loss community have access to, you know, health insurers covering state-of-the-art prosthetic devices that more or less functionally replace an arm or a leg to as much as possible. I don't put that in because I'm getting thousands of dollars from the limb loss community or something. It was like, that money doesn't exist. That's not a thing you know, that I'm getting. Instead, it's more like I'm doing because it it's the right thing to do. And my God, the day I see someone with a B-Bionic 3 saying like, hey, I got this arm or I got this leg because Delegate Rome, this billet you put in, well, then I've done my job. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? End of the day, that's what it comes down to. Um, and that feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation. So sitting in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? If you offer the phrase to live a good life, what comes up for me personally is, oh man, if I'm being super real about it, I miss being on stage so much with my band. I really do. I don't miss the work that goes into it at all. I don't miss a lot of other stuff. But what I do miss is live performing. That to me is a good life of being on the road and just getting to do all that sort of stuff. But in the role of my life now is at 37, the good life at this point is not only being the best politician, the best, you know, state representative that can be for, you know, the people I represent, but really having a good balance of work, getting to make my partner laugh, you know, like, you know, when we see each other, you know, taking kiddo to school in the morning for my stepdaughter, especially as like my partner, my stepdaughter, we don't live in the same place. Right. And so, you know, I've got to split my time between where I live here in Manassas and where they are. And, you know, just finding that balance, being able to achieve that balance, being able to express myself for who I am without reservation. And at the same time, doing a lot of good things for a lot of people. That to me is a good life, you know, making sure that my constituents are taken care of and that they can trust me to take care of them, not based on theory, but based on evidence. I think that is the best life I can live. Mm. Thank you. You And I I would close that with a quote from St. Francis de Sales of be who you are and be that well. Mm, Beautiful. (laughs) I love the way you wrap with that. Thanks so much for listening. And hey, if you love this conversation, safe bet you'll also love the conversation that we had with Jeffrey Marsh about really living into your own sense of identity unapologetically. You'll find a link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Spark. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights 
to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.